You ready? Oh, yeah. Piece of cake. I'm, I've got my Bible app primed and ready, cocked and loaded. No, we're, we're, we are alive. All right. Part three of Biblical Wealth. So we, once again, to review, last week, uh, it was a big week talking all about how important it is to work hard. This is key to building wealth, and this is key to working for Hashem, not for ourselves. You're writing this down, right? Okay, so that that was a, was a great discussion. You guys did great. One of the ways that we ended last week was really, it's, it's always inspirational to me to hear this, but it's this idea of the thing that that is the most motivating toward action is hunger. When we're hungry for something, it is a very fierce driving factor towards something. And we want to be hungry, not for money. We want to be hungry towards serving Hashem and towards acquiring wisdom. Because both of those, the blessing and the byproduct of those is money, is wealth. So this week, we're going to talk about one of the chapters or, or one of the sections of this book about Jewish wealth, the Jewish approach to wealth, is the ethics of wealth which is a really interesting chapter. So it kicks off by going through a wonderful quote here from the Ramban's letter. And it goes like this. The queen of all ethical behavior is the glorious attribute of humility. Humility is the best of all attributes. And then in Tana Bidei Eliyahu Rabbah, I know you were just reading that this morning, right? Um, it, was, it says, a person should first acquire humility and then ask for wisdom and insight. And only then ask for his livelihood. So it really puts humility at the beginning, before even our, our search for wisdom, before our prayer to God for our livelihood. I think it's a it's very fascinating. So just a couple more verses here. I'm, I'm looking for some readers too. You guys got your Bibles out. Bible. Someone grab Proverbs 22, 4. Proverbs 22, 22, verse 4. You are already there, Mr. Spock. Yeah, I'm here. You, you already had that pulled up? Read. It was caught in love. Oh. It was. You on this? Uh, no, I, actually, I just happened to pull this up because I... You said humility, so I was like, well, let's do a word search for humility. There we go. Um, Proverbs 22.4. Yes. The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. Would you look at that? Right there in River City. Boom! <laughs> That's the word right there. And that, is, that is very cool. Now someone grab Psalm 37, verse 11. Psalm 37, verse 11. Again. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Mm. Excellent. Obviously, the English translation there, meek, is clearly also from the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Both of those, that, that term, that, like the inheriting the land or inheriting the earth, that is sort of a euphemism for livelihood. For a, a being, having land is a, is a definite form of wealth. It used to be the only way to vote in this country. <laughs> there you have it. Absolutely. So, so this, there's some, some pearls being strung here, right? And so here's another really neat verse or uh, section here from Pesachim 113a. And it says, When a person humbles himself 
when he's willingly when he willingly recognizes that he needs Hashem's salvation in all things, he merits true wealth. Hashem pronounces his pleasure at the rich man who tithes his income in a concealed way. So we see a, a, if a man is humble and seeks to be humble, and then God blesses him with wealth, it's neat to think that, well, one of the things a humble man would do if he was, you know, giving would be to do it in a concealed way to further his humanity. <laughs> so I, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really neat one. Uh, Which obviously, of, oh, sorry. Well, just, just to obviously, the, uh, the icing on the cake from this book was why did Hashem choose Israel? And that is from Devarim 7, verse 7. If someone wants to read that. I have it. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that Adonai set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. Mm. But, well, that was it. Yeah. The, uh, <clears throat> one of the other Hebrew understandings of that is, uh, but because you diminish or you humble yourselves. And so that, that is kind of the icing on the cake there. It's clearly because we were called to be a humble people. Uh, I've always loved Yeshua's analogy when he talks about like, or I'm pretty sure that was from it. But you know the idea where you maybe that's from James. I'm thinking of, but well, it's, it's the, what it is where of. you don't want to sit at the best seat James. and then have someone tell you you need to go into a different seat. Yeah. You want to sit in the worst possible seat and have them ask you, you to come Isn't up. It both. The master does it at the banquet. He talks about the banquet. Yeah, and James talks about it in the synagogue, right? Oh, James's references to uh, treat people fair, like uh, appropriately, uh, depending on, regardless of wealth and yeah. so forth. But the um, I think that also Yeshua strongly critiques, harshly critiques those who try to do their good deeds to show off. He, he comments a couple of times on the hypocritical members of the Pharisee sect who would kind of. You know, uh, who, who I think he's actually, I think charity's referenced there. I believe they you know, sound a trumpet before they give before charity. Before they give charity, And exactly. so it's like that, that, exactly what you're getting at. is like that's, that is the antithesis of, of sort of the appropriate way. In fact, he specifically says they have received their reward in full. So um, it's kind of along those, like, the, some of those examples. So um, in that case, it's like thinking about what you're talking about here, you know, that, you know, hu humility precedes riches. It's like, well, um, if you want that reward from God, then you should do your good deeds humbly. Absolutely. I loved, too, this, uh, this passage from Pesachim that, where it talks about, I just love the phrasing, that he, uh, when a person willingly recognizes that he needs Hashem's salvation in all things. Obviously, like, just expressed in Hebrew, it would, that, is, that to me, it just it really resonates, because it's like, that's what Yeshua said. He said, seek first the kingdom, and then everything gets added on. It gets added to you. But, and what is the kingdom? But him, his coming, his return. He is going to come to establish the kingdom. So it's just, it, it's, a, it's a really neat way of phrasing that. Because, and then it says, then he merits true wealth. And I, I love that proverb that says that the wealth is, that, that Hashem blesses with wealth and he adds no sorrow to it. Because that's really true wealth. There are people that have tons of money and probably would not think of themselves as wealthy because they are so stressed, they're so distraught, their family life is a wreck, there's all sorts of problems, and we that's not what we're looking for. What we're looking for is the wealth that is a blessing from Hashem. Yeah, and I think about, um, 
first off, your first efforts about uh, Yeshua being uh, doing everything, looking to the to God's Yeshua, His salvation to, yeah. for you. Uh, reminds me of First Peter five seven, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Um, uh, and kind of that same context of seeking first the kingdom of heaven, and Yeshua is talking about that. It's like, yeah. don't worry about all these things. You know, uh, basically trust trust God to provide for you, and um, and He will. Exactly. Yeah. If He dresses the lilies of the field and so forth, right? Yeah, and then that so much easier said than done, though. Oh, oh, I know, but I think it is. But you're so right, though, worry. about the wealth, the wealth factor, and the and stress. That if you want to be to have wealth and be at peace. That only really comes from God. I mean, right. there are people who may have that who don't get it from God, in a sense. But I mean, like the only consistent way is right. is to have that is to, is to trust God for it. And and ironically, that brings that peace. I mean, like if you really believe that God takes care of your livelihood, oddly enough, often He does more than you expected. And then you're not stressed over it because that was the whole reason, like the whole starting place, because you're trusting Him to take care of it anyway. Yeah, exactly. Job says that the wicked man will not be rich and his wealth will not endure or will his possessions spread over the earth. Mm. You've got you to be on the righteous side of that coin. It's a, it's a fleeting thing if you're wicked. Absolutely. In James, I think the one you're thinking about is um, let the lowly brother boast his exaltation and riches in his humiliation. There's also no, James chapter five. Is I was right. thinking specifically about the banquet, uh, which is yeah, which is which is a reference from Yeshua. James <coughs> does reference there needing to be equality. If a wealthy man walks in, you can't give him the best seat in the house. If a poor man walks in, you can't tell him you sit over there. Uh, it, it's not how it works. Um, but thank you, I appreciate that. So there's a couple. There's just some interesting ethical points that this book goes through that I was just going to kind of pop out and we can see if we want to talk about them. But one here from Yoma 86A is one who conducts his business dealings in, a, in gentle ways sanctifies Hashem's name. Hmm. I thought that was really neat. I was uh, Recently I came across a, a story of a guy who was negotiating for a car. And I have always been under the impression that some of the best negotiators are the ones that really drive a tough bargain. They don't take no for an answer, you know, they get in there and they're tough and they stick it out and they're, you know, they, they, they talk fast and, and they, they don't take no for an answer, right? And, but this guy is, he was a former FBI kidnapping negotiator and he completely flipped it on his head. He was from New York, he could have been rough if he wanted to, but he took a very gentle approach to all of his negotiations. And in a particular time when he was talking about buying a car, he, he just, his manner of speaking was very, not only gentle, but it was very accommodating and respectful of the salesperson, which is sometimes rare, especially with a used car salesman. <laughs> such a stereotype that I don't know how many people have a lot of respect for them. But this man showed a lot of respect to this person, and he ended up getting the price that he wanted. So I just thought this was an interesting one. Gentle ways. Thoughts around that? Have you experienced or uh, or came across any examples in your own life when being gentle turned out to lead to success in business dealings? Well, I think that um, I think that for one thing, uh, it's a common understanding that if you want to be successful in business. 
the most part, people have to like you. Regard not, not everybody necessarily, but somebody has to like you. Otherwise, you're very quickly going to be, um, uh, especially in today's society, casket is hard to work with or difficult to make sales and so forth. If you're a salesman, you have to you have to strike up a rapport with the person you're trying to sell to. If you're a coworker in a in a corporation, you need to play well with others because um, at some point you're going to need them and you're going to need to co coordinate, cooperate with them, and they need to be comfortable with you. I think it's interesting. I saw a headline a number of months ago um, talking about how kind of like the, 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 the tough boss was kind of on the way out because um, as, especially as, as like millennials have gotten more and more in the workforce, um, they don't really respond to that very well. And companies don't really like having those kind of people around anymore. So it's like you want people who are going to be able to connect with the people they're working with. Someone who's just, you know, all power and no grace is not, that's not really, um, that's not really in. Good point. In fact, that is a great segue because one of the other little quotes here was from Sukkah 29b, which says, Rob said, the wealth of those who are arrogant declines and disappears. And a lot of times that, that there is an association with arrogance when it comes to a boss like that. Or, or even an employee like that, who just treats everyone like dirt and walks all over people. That, that it stems from a place, I think, a lot of times of arrogance. Mm -hmm. I think this is fascinating to see that, that type of boss is on the decline. I'm curious. I've been in business a long time, but I've never thought about gentle business dealings. Transparent kind, caring. I, I think uh, I can help you with that. In times yeah. when somebody we, calls... We, we went on a sales call this morning. Yeah, I, I think you are very gentle. I think when a, when a customer calls you and they're upset about something, or if they broke something and now they're asking you to fix it, I think one of the best things about Quo Vadis is they can expect a gentle, yet to your point, transparent response. Mm. So it's not that you're being gentle in terms of hiding something mm -hmm. or concealing anything, it's in your delivery. Mm. Uh -huh. Yeah, and I definitely think that integrity is very important in the workforce too. People need to know that they can trust you. Um, and sometimes that means being the kind of person who can say something that they may not want to hear. Right. I'm really good at that. Even tough <laughs> things, though, said in a gentle way are so much easier to handle, you know? I think I, the, the word gentle, <coughs> I, I mean, you all know me. I don't, the word gentle doesn't normally describe me. <laughs> well, but I think that I think that you mentioned kind earlier. I think those are very similar. They can be expressed in the same way. Um, and I think that, like, uh, like here's an example. In, in my work... Uh, I am regularly in touch with people who are significantly above my pay grade. Um, and you, there is a certain degree of gentleness, so to speak, that you need to kind of try to use decorum, deference, whatever. Um, and I think that, but I think that in general, um, 
that gentleness <coughs> can go a long way, especially in cases where you're trying to sell something or you're trying to get something. If you if you simply are passing along an order, you need to do this. Gentleness is not really a quality that you're sitting at that moment. So maybe you would not describe yourself necessarily as quote unquote a gentle boss, but you may very well be gentle with your customers. So maybe just different um, uh, aspects of your business dealing. And even gentleness can be considered as something such as tempered, um, tempered, direct, or tempered. Um, what? No, not tempered. No, temp tempered. Like tempered strength. Yes. Coming out as a, as a refined. Whereas it's not raw, it is, but still it is reduced in its gentle earth. Mm. Would be a better word. It's reassuring. I think you do a good job of being reassuring, even in the midst of Trump. issues, <laughs> chaos. Yes. Okay. All right. So uh, this is a great verse here, kind of speaking to some of the things that we talked about. Uh, can someone pull up Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 26? Twenty-six? Chapter 2, verse 26. That's the last verse. For to the one who pleases him, God has given him given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after wealth. So this kind of goes to the arrogance, wealth will disappear and decline, right? There's this, if we acquire our wealth in the wrong way, mm. <laughs> Solomon is pointing out, oh, I've, I've seen what happens to that. Mm. That ends up going to the other guy who's right. just been serving Hashem the whole time. And so I, I think that's a great verse to kind of illustrate the difference there. Uh, I, I really like that. I, that, that, you know the story of Coney the Sabbath Keeper? Mm. I love the story of Coney the Sabbath Keeper. Is it Coney the Sabbath Keeper or Coney the Circle Maker? Coney the Circle Maker. Maybe it's not Coney, but I'm going to use Coney because this is great. Coney the Sabbath Keeper. So Coney the Sabbath Keeper, I, I can't remember where I heard the story the first time, but it's like this sort of you know, midrashi legend type thing. Anyway, to illustrate a point, um, Coney uh, loved to keep Shabbat. He wasn't very wealthy, but he would save up his money like all week to buy a nice dinner for Shabbat. Mm -hmm. And he loved get making, you know, getting a nice fish dinner every, every week for Shabbat. Honey um, lived in the same town as a very, very wealthy man who's not a Sabbath keeper. We're going to call him John. John, definitely not a Jewish man. Um, he, uh, actually John is a Jewish name, but anyway. Uh, John um, is a wealthy man, and one night he has a dream that all of his wealth is going to go to Coney the Sabbath Keeper. And he's terrified. He's just, like, that can't happen. Won't happen. So he, he gathers up all of his wealth. He decides the best thing he can do is to keep it as close to him as possible. So he invests his wealth into the largest pearl that he can find. And he puts it in a necklace. And he wears it on his neck. So that way, he thinks, Coney's never going to touch this. It's going to be on me all the time. Sleep with it. Whatever. One day, John is walking, uh, and he crosses a bridge over a river, and the pearl slips from his necklace, falls into the water, and mm -hmm. is swallowed by a fish. And you can just guess which <laughs> fish Coney the Sabbath Keeper had on Friday night. <laughs>
So I love that story, even if it's probably not true. But I love the story that apes have been, you know, hidden to protect the innocent, um, because it uh, it illustrates the idea that was definitely what you're talking about. That those who keep God's commandments are blessed. Now they don't always end up with something like that, but the point is that they um, God provides for them. Amen. And as Ecclesiastes is stating, ultimately the wicked uh, are. Um, Going to be providing for the rich. They're going to be. They're they're uh, things. I mean, it's, I mean, even just on a sign of a side note, this is not exactly in the same context, but thinking about right now, um, the uh, Jacob. Well, that's a good example. Exactly, definitely a great example. I was thinking in modern times, um, kind of on a bigger national scale. Uh, just this week, the United States recognized Israeli control over the Golan Heights, which is the area, the mountains in the north of Israel. The country that has claimed them for so long, and still kind of does, um, is Syria. However, the Syrian president has been committing war crimes against his own people with chemical weapons and whatever else for the last, like, seven years. So it was funny, they, they asked uh, some, some um, American envoy, uh, don't you think this is going to make it harder for you to do your job talking about Syria because, you know, other countries are going to be mad at you for, you know, violating the United Nations resolution or whatever else and recognizing Israeli control? And his, his response is basically... The president of Syria is a pariah. No one likes him. Who's defending him? So to my point, to your point, as it's saying, like God's taking things from the wicked and giving them the righteous, so to speak. Um, even even in kind of a, a bigger picture. Mm. Excellent. Yeah. So as we're talking about the ethics of wealth, inevitably we come across the greatest obstacle that stands between a person and his dignity. And, and so this dignity. and his dignity. So this Clothing. this. Well, this verse goes, or this uh, this part of the book goes into one of the biggest things that we that that can be a detriment to wealth and to dignity, and that is lust. This is, of course, could be an entirely separate series of classes, but here is here is I'll, I'll just read it through here. In the pursuit of self pleasure, he demeans and humiliates himself completely. His lusts preoccupy and intoxicate him until he has little energy or initiative to accomplish anything productive. A person who wishes to succeed should therefore contain his physical drives. Then he will prosper. This is from Gatine 70a. Eight things are detrimental in abundance, but beneficial in moderation. These are traveling, marital relations, wealth, work, wine, Sleep and hot water. <laughs> okay, read, read this again. I get marital relations. Traveling. 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 Marital relations. Wealth. Work. Wine. I'm skipping it. <laughs> no, in abundance. Detrimental in abundance. Okay. Sleep, sleep and hot water the hot water one is just really funny obviously I feel like we could all probably come up with verses for, for most of these traveling is also an odd one although I, I do remember there was a bunch of, of passages in like one of the Talmudic ethics classes that we had about like the rules for how often a husband is allowed to travel and uh, if, if yeah, anyway. But then there also, I think, too, think of business. Okay, so this is like detrimental in abundance. Um, 
traveling for business isn't necessarily detrimental for that, but traveling on your own for fun can be. I mean, I, I've, I've known someone who felt like they were constantly restarting their career because just when they kind of got going in a job for six, nine months to save their money, they were gone. They spent three months living overseas. And it's like if you, if, you, if you live a lifestyle where you're traveling for pleasure, because that's what we're talking about, I think, yes. so much, it becomes very difficult to have a structure and a routine, both with work, with family, with a lot of things. I would argue having had to travel much for business, that will destroy you. Hmm. If you had to go out two nights a week, overnight, you know, constantly <coughs> away from your wife, away from your kids, no one there to watch, no accountability. Like, like, for personal experience, that takes a, a lot of self-control. Hmm. It really does. One of the great verses that illustrate this point from Proverbs twenty-one seventeen is. Whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. So, we have to be careful. And so, back to what I was saying before, I mean, really, the topic of lust could be a very big series about, I mean, there's plenty of Musar all about, you know, just that, that uh, the Jewish ethics or, or uh, principles that relate to avoiding it, keeping it under control, because there's just a lot... And that is a drive within all of us, mm-hmm. and and in this case, they're they're using wine and oil and stuff. Yeah, I think it even goes beyond. It could be anything, right? It's, it's it really more can. Than just a um, Any, sexual any's... desire. I think right, it also exactly. runs into gluttony and drunkenness. I mean, yeah. think about like think about the different things over the last hundred fifty years that have destroyed families: alcoholism, uh, gambling addictions, as well as sexual addictions. So, I mean, think basically anything. That becomes consuming, right. lust. It, it um, takes the place, the rightful place, the time and energy you need to put into other things. Right, it, it distracts you. I mean, I think mentally, it's especially in today's world, so many jobs require mental energy, like all day long. Yeah. And if you're thinking about something else, because something else is interesting you a whole lot more than what you're doing, you're not going to be very good at what you're doing. That's right. Right. And exactly. This entire thing circles back to. Um, once you, you your wealth is also um, in humility, you also have to remember that once you have been granted wealth through humility by God, you must not for I mean, the Bible clearly states that you must not forget God. Mm-hmm. You must remember to thank Him. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and then those types of things. <clears throat> interestingly enough, I mean, if you if you want to go and uh, I'm sure. To look at people who went from being very wealthy to very not wealthy, mm. I bet you a lot of that money was spent on those types of activities. Yes, exactly. Oh, it's the only thing that'll just right. Yeah, suck the wealth right out of you. Remembering where that wealth came from is also a temperament to us. Right. I, I, I would go further than that. I would, at least for me, to remember that any wealth that comes to me. It's not mine, right? Not. I'm just a steward. So if he's, you know, if, if someday he should decide to make me wealthy, it, you know, it is strictly so that I can be a conduit to others and, and to uh, make his goodness help us. Marzutra, son of Rav Nachman, taught a person should not accustom his son to meat and wine. Chulin 84a. 
reinforcing so this idea. That's <laughs> advice for you, buddy. Well, just reinforcing this idea that not only are we to be be very careful with indulging in pleasures, but we should pass that on to even our son. Well, and that, who's that guy you just quoted? Mars? Mars Zutra, son of Rav. Mars Zutra. Yeah. yeah well, and then sure I think the two, the, think about context earlier, you mentioned hot water. In this reference, you mentioned meat. Um, the context, these men are speaking, these, these, are, these are luxuries. These are significant luxuries. Like today, I mean, you may be dirt poor and you can turn on hot water and, you know, you can get what pretends to be meat at McDonald's. So the point is that, like, um, what, we, what, we, uh, what, what, Amer- what Americans may experience in a normal life may be a little different than that, but the principles still apply. The idea being that one should be moderate in, in their use of luxuries um, because they're not, it's, not it's not healthy for like an excess of that. Right. There's a, this is really a neat Rashi on a Talmudic passage. So, so work with me here. So this is from Yoma 76b. And that, that phrase from the Talmud says, why is the verse, why is the word for wine tirash, for one who draws after it becomes rash, poor? Mm. Uh, and so then Rashi kind of flushes that out a little bit. And he says, okay, here, here's the explanation. Luxury items make a person poorer and not richer. Besides the expenses involved, they tire him. They rob him of his strength and drive, and thereby of prosperity. Thus, to avoid poverty, a person must avoid the wine of this world, the intoxicating self-indulgence that strips him of all. And here's the great way of avoiding that. However, if a person takes from this world a moderate way, he may enjoy it, and at the same time, enrich himself. This is especially true if he does so with pure intentions. Intentions such as wanting to increase his energy level, or to relax a little and refresh himself, serve to open his mind and help him function with greater efficiency and competence. You call me Mr. Moderate. Doesn't that... I like that. I just love that. I really love that, because I never feel guilty coming over here for Shabbat and having delicious and expensive cheese and wine. It's like... It's because we have not only because we don't do that all the time. Right. Because we're very moderate with it, and our pure intention isn't to say, "Well, I've earned this. Let's sit down here and actually eat some of this money that we finally you know been making all week." But it's to literally try to make Shabbat more special than any other day of the week. It's a very pure intention. So I I, I really I I love that. It's it's a way to relax. I mean, I, I think it's really cool. Rashi is uh, he's, he's got a great great point here. All right, so we're going to continue on in the the ethics section here. What are you doing there, bud? Did you lose a, a rubber band? Uh, is this why they keep some poking me? I'm trying to put some. That's the soft wax that I'm supposed to put on there. Oh, I it's just that. just won't go on. It just yeah. keeps on poking me. Yeah. So you're bleeding? Yeah. It's just kind of like swollen so the inside of my lip. So you're not bleeding. Okay, stop whining. <laughs> I, I do want to try to get to, we have an honoring one's wife and honoring Shabbat section of the book. That There's not a ton in there, but I did want to get to that tonight so that next week we can talk about tzedakah. I did want to uh, ask, what is this book? Oh, it's called... The Jewish Approach to Woman. Yeah, the Jewish, thank you. 
The Jewish Approach to Wealth by Avraham Avi Schwartz. Okay. Yes. Uh, so this was a, a neat illustration now from still, still on the subject of ethics of wealth, taking care of the things that we have. So this is a story from Tanis or Tanit 23b. And it's uh, when Rab Abba Kilkia would cross a, a thorny field, he would raise his cloak above his knees so that the thorns would tear his flesh and not his garment. Why do you do this? His students asked. My flesh will heal itself, he answered. But to repair my cloak will cost me time hmm. and effort. Hmm. Hmm. So... The, the idea here, oh, and, and then uh, there's just a, to add on to that from Hulin 91a, it says, Yaakov remained alone. He crossed the river again to bring small jars. Why did he endanger himself for such items? From here we learn that the righteous care more for their money than for themselves. And why should the righteous love their money so? Because they don't steal. In other words, they earned it. It's, it's a picture of their righteousness. They, they value it because they, they put righteous work into it. Righteous work into it and recognize that it is a blessing from Hashem and they want to care for it. I had kind of thought about the, uh, the parable that Yeshua talks about when with the master giving the talents hmm. to the servants. And you see, I mean, two in two cases, they literally doubled the amount that they were given. Like, they, it was not only did they care for it, they multiplied it, you know? And, yeah, and they, they didn't lose any. Got, got kicked in the yeah, panic. He, right, that was not good. That was not good at all. He still he still cared somewhat for it, but he didn't produce more from it. I just thought, you know, obviously this is taking it to a, an extreme in order to prove the point here. But the point being, we don't want to fall into that. And, I, and I, I've definitely been guilty of this, where it's like, it's only, it was only $5. And you don't really care about something. Or, oh, I could try to fix that, but it, it, it was cheap. That's fine. We'll just get another one, right? And it's like, there's a, it's kind of an attitude or a mindset or an approach to the things that we have that is easy to fall into. Um, and so I think this is just a, a, a good reminder to say, even if it was inexpensive, it is still something yours, you something you worked hard toward and something that God blessed you with. And I do you think treat that, it with respect. I think that you're absolutely right. At the same time, I do think that that's, I think it's a good motivation to avoid carelessness and, um, and and be and recklessness. But I do think too that sometimes you have to be willing to uh, to to eat, so to speak, a lower cost um, to avoid stress, to avoid a waste of time. You know, he's talking about walking to the thorny fields. You know, uh, at some point it's like, well, I could fix this for twenty dollars, or I could take it to the repairman for thirty, but. Just because it's going to save you ten dollars, if it means you can spend an hour or more with your kids, you know, like you kind of have to do. Always. It's a bigger picture than there's just. There's always money. there's always a, a a balance that needs to be struck, and there's there's no right answer always, right? You can't always say it's more than seven dollars. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to right. do. You know, that's just ridiculous. Well, right. the picture of Jacob that, that you gave um, is a good illustration because in that case, Jacob only costs himself so to speak to go back for the jars he'd already put his family in in safety he made point of that first he goes back after dropping them off to go pick up the remaining items so the point is to say that like perhaps maybe where um you can put in a little extra effort you can do a little bit more that may be worthwhile but other times where it may be um, an unnecessary stress 
in your family, or it may, you, know, you don't need to get down over it and you know, make your day a bad day, that kind of thing. I, I think the, the right answer is if you're thinking about it and weighing it, you're already on the right track. If you mm -hmm. say, as you said, it's only five bucks, what are you, what are you whining about? Mm -hmm. There's a problem already. Exactly. Because the five dollars is not the issue. Mm -hmm. It's the attitude. It's the attitude. We're just going to toss it. By the way, in the jars? What was in the jars? Nine millimeter ammo. <laughs> nice. How do you think he took down that angel? I really, oh. I really love this. Uh, this is another quote from the book itself, and then it, uh, it's it's a follow on to something from the Pure K boat. But it said, to succeed in business, a person must act in the best of faith. He must show concern for other people's property. For it is better that he lose a little than that he creates a situation where his friend suffers. Moreover, the person who acts like this ultimately profits. Mm -hmm. And so Rabbi Yossi said, care for your friend's money as you would for your own. From Pirkei Avot, chapter 2, verse 12. We use that in our covenant. But I think like this is, this is really probably one of the more popular things that I've heard from a lot of different successful people and podcasts and books and stuff is this concept where it's like, if you want to make more money, if you want to be more wealthy, there's this counterintuitive focus that you need to have. And it's that you don't focus at all about your own money or what you need. It's all about the people around you. How much can you bless the people around you? How easy can you make their life? In fact, uh, Sean Wright used to always quote somebody. I don't remember who he used to quote, but he used to always say, you want to make a billion dollars? You need to help a billion people. And that, that is that's a neat illustration to say, your money comes from others. You got to earn that. Like you add value to their life first, and then they pay you money. So it's a, it's a very popular mantra that I've heard over and over again. And I think it's a great mindset to have when we're at work as well. I mean, I find myself all the time slipping back into, oh, you know, what, what can I do for a raise? And it's like, that's the, I always have to remind myself, that's the, not, not the, the way that I should phrase that. It should always be, how can I add more value to my company? How can I add more value to my boss? How can I add more value to the people around me? They might not even have anything to do with how much I get paid. But if I just, I know that if I add more value to their lives, that even if I don't make more money, at least I feel more wealthy, right? At least I know I'm doing the right thing. The, uh, another very popular principle that I've heard a lot is this whole idea of like attracts like. Poverty attracts poverty and wealth attracts wealth. Thus the wealthy who act in wealthy ways come to greater wealth, while the poor who are miserly simply become poorer. Hmm. And uh, so this was, uh, this was a neat verse here from, uh, I'll, I'll just read it. it. Rava asks Rava Bar Mari, from where do we learn that one who touches oil has oily hands, i.e. one who mixes with the wealthy becomes rich? We learn this from Lot, he answers. As the verse states, uh, Lot, who followed Abraham, had flocks, herds, and tents. So I thought that was just neat. That was from uh, Genesis 13.5, but that was Baba Kama 93a. Uh, you know, so there's just, there's, there's a lot here uh, well, it's like you're, you're on, on that point. You're always making, you are the sum of your five best friends. Yes. 
Yes, I. You said that so many times. I've been a fan of that. Absolutely, I know. There's a there's a particular gentleman who's he wrote a the book. average every five best friends, I should say. Yeah, the right. Yeah, the average. Uh, I don't know how five. That that increases your if the if the rest are really good. <laughs> but one of them is Buffett. No, I mean, that's great. Yeah, I did. Yeah. That's five, five. But I it's, think it, it is interesting. I think you and I were talking this recently about it feels like um, how much more our lives became successful um, in kind of the context of basically coming to this class and spending lots of time with the men in this class. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And lives becoming more focused, more diligent, um, mm-hmm. uh, more successful, as well as more productive. Um, and, and thinking about like, I don't think that's a that's an accident. Right. You're inspired by the men around you, and, and then bad that, company creates good morals. So. Yeah, it's, and, exactly. And all, the yeah. opposite is absolutely. And true. poor company yeah. creates more poverty. I think that's what we talked about. Yeah. The the cycle of poverty is so cycle. difficult because if you live in a poor community, you're surrounded by people who perhaps do no fault of their own, but nonetheless have been unable to make money. Right. You're not going to learn how to make money by being around those kind of people. That's true. Right. Yeah, I mean, and it's amazing how that principle applies to so many different things. I think, like, sometimes in a context of a bunch of people who only have one child or two children, I always think, like, yeah, I have a lot of children because I hang out with people that love children and have a lot of children. And then you think about, like, you know, people, and it's like, well, I'm passionate about my faith and my religion because I hang around people that are passionate about their faith and their religion. I, you know, entrepreneurship. I mean, there's like, there's so many interests of mine that I feel like have been positively influenced by just hanging around this community. It's been, it's been a real blessing. It's a good community. Absolutely. This is a, this is another great... Those of you interested in the community, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There'll be a love yeah, operation. Right, that's right. Well, you need to no. move to North Carolina. That's right. There's a meetup. You can find us. That's right. Join the meetup. Yeah. There is a, uh, this is a good quote from the book as well that I, I've just copied the whole paragraph because it's really good. It says, one who mixes with the wealthy becomes rich. One who spends time amongst the rich, he learns to adapt, uh, adopt their attitudes and attributes, their mode of behavior, speech, and even thought. All this helps to gain his own wealth. In a metaphysical sense, too, the person who associates with the rich rubs shoulders with the heavenly or sometimes unheavenly forces that enrich them. Obviously, wealth that comes with heaven's blessing is better than that which comes with a curse. Therefore, if he wishes to gain riches in this way, he should associate only with people whose wealth is kosher, while he should avoid people whose wealth comes through sin. So this, we talked about last week this association between wealthy, righteous people and how that perpetuates in the minds of those outside looking in that if I want to be wealthy, I need to be righteous. As opposed to the other side, where mm. those that gain their wealth through sinful things or whatever, like it's it's the wrong example that they're setting, and at some point will that will get corrected. But I just I, I I thought that was a really a really interesting way of putting it because that is well, there's a lot of books out there right now. Think of like Tim Ferriss's Tools of Titans. And there's, there's a couple others, but that, that literally all they do is they just interview a bunch of billionaires and they ask them like, so what's your morning routine? What do you eat for breakfast? Like what? And it's literally to try to just like soak in the 
the day and the life of somebody that's really wealthy. And inevitably, they have just very unique and, and tedious, structured, disciplined types of days. And, I mean, even if we got a little bit of that from, from association, I think we, it would benefit greatly. So, I, yes? Well, essentially, when you said, well, what you just said, it, uh, it reminded me of the 10 ways to reduce your risk of death by gun violence. Mm. This came out from Jim, Jim Cox uh, in 2018. Some of them don't apply to what you just said, like don't commit suicide. Um, but uh, don't join a gang because your association, <laughs> right? So, yeah. um, right? Um, don't buy or sell illegal drugs. Mm. It's an amazing wealth builder. But, you know, get you shot. It gets you shot. You're more likely to commit gun violence. Uh, don't get involved with abusive people. Um, implement a personal curfew. Stay away from gun-free zones. That makes sense. Uh, don't associate with convicted criminals. Um, avoid people who handle guns in an irresponsible manner. I think the reason why I bring this up is because almost every one of these ten things, I think at least eight of them, have to do with who you hang around with. Mm. That's good. You know, whether it's whether it's wealth or safety, if you hang with people that aren't safe, you won't be safe. If, if you hang with people that aren't wealthy or aren't righteous, then you probably won't be. And if you do, then you probably will become that way. Right. Well, I think you and I were talking earlier about um, you know college life and hanging out with people. Um, <coughs> Where it doesn't really matter if you if you uh, if you clean your house or they come visit kind of thing, people who are fun they're relaxed you enjoy your time with them and whatever else. But if that's like all of the friends you have, then your life is going to be lacking structure and discipline and whatever else. But Ed Milet, the podcast you sent me, he was talking about the idea that you need to have friends that you want to clean your house for, friends that you have that have higher standards than you that make you want to be better, mm-hmm. um, that push you. And and it's uh, funny how I feel like in my life today. Like, all my friends are that way. And um, I think it's a good thing. I think it's not a bad thing. But I think it's like, just thinking about that whole context, again, it's like if you surround yourself with people who are successful, who understand work, who understand um, good family life and all types of things, people you can learn from, uh, watch. I mean, that was the whole idea. And they're going to encourage you to do the same. Right. And that was the whole idea behind, like, the disciples of Yeshua. Like, they lived with him because they wanted to absorb everything he had. It wasn't just to hear him preach more. There were crowds who did that, but they lived with him because they wanted to see how he prayed, how he slept, what he ate, what he didn't eat, what he said, you know, his morning routine, so to speak. They wanted to know everything about him because they wanted to be like him. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Someone grab Philippians 2, chapter 2, verse 3 through 4. That wraps up the ethics section. By the way... The apostolic scripture references here, just so that we're clear, I, I'm adding those into here. This was a it was an orthodox book, so, uh, but but lots of of universal principles, which is why I got excited to share with everybody. So, it's got Philippians. My brother and I had to leave in five minutes. Okay. Philippians two. Yeah, three. Philippians two, uh, verse three and four. I've had it for a while. I'm just waiting for you guys. Okay. I'll move. Okay, go ahead. 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than your own selves. Than no, than yourselves. But each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So if we, I wanted to bookend the section of the ethics of wealth, starting with humility, ending with humility. Lots of interesting principles all throughout there, but at the end of the day, that's a big focus. Hopefully, that's a big takeaway for tonight that. Humility is related to wealth because it is, an, it is a desirable attribute and Hashem blesses with wisdom and with wealth when we are humble. Mm. So real quick, we'll, we'll wrap up with a couple of neat other chapters that were significantly shorter in the book, so it's fine that they're shorter in discussion, but are nonetheless important. So one of my favorites, there's a section on honor your wife. And so interesting that this book includes that section. This is the first. Any wealth book you read out there, at least any that I've read, none of them mention your wife or how you interact with her. But this book goes so far as to say the rabbis teach that a man's wife is the source of prosperity and happiness. And as we see here in Proverbs 18.22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Yeah, I would say Solomon would consistently, even in uh, the Ashikah, agree with that. Absolutely, absolutely. Rav Hilbo said, A man should always treat his wife with respect, for blessing only enters his house on her account. Similarly, Rava told the people of Mechuzah, Honor your wives that you may become rich. Hmm. That's from Bava Metzia. 59a the i i really i i remember reading this a while back but i couldn't remember where it was from sure enough huleen 84b should have known but this is just such a great little little nugget and it's a uh, rav avira taught at times in rav ami's name and at times in rav asi's name a person should eat and drink at a level less than he can afford Clothe and acquire a home according to what he can afford, and honor his wife and children more than he can afford, for they depend on him, while he depends on the one who created the world with his word. Nice. I've always wow. liked that. I just thought that was so cool because you know we just did we just read from Philippians that we so this is speaking to men as individuals, we should do nothing out of selfish ambition. We should treat others better than we treat ourselves, right? And so I just, I, I thought that was just so neat. It's like, okay, yeah, with my own food and drink, yeah, I don't I don't need to, to eat and drink at a level that I can afford, you know? I'll step it below. I'll have just the rice and bean burrito. I don't need, you know, the lavish chicken and the steak or anything, you know? But but then when it comes to your wife and kids, it's like, oh, no, bring, bring it all out. What, what do you do? Yeah, I just, I, I think that's really neat. I do think Hashem sees our desire to genuinely want to honor our wives, to care for our children, and that he would bless accordingly. And Joshua, you brought up before a similar concept with Shabbat, and that was actually another one that I, I love here. Uh, oh, actually, this is a really good verse, too, I wanted to include. So these were from Proverbs. I'll just go ahead and read them real quick. So just on the topic still of life. With her input, her support, she builds a grand palace of a home. As the verse teaches, 
The wisdom of a woman builds her home, from Proverbs 14.1. Also, she wins the trust of her husband, which brings still more riches into their home. And this is Proverbs 31.11. When her husband's heart trusts her, there is, there's no lack of spoils. So, again, relating to you honor your wife, God blesses you with wealth. And, and, it, and But that concept, I think, we still see with Shabbat, and we see with others, too. We, we, one of the other things that we just learned was... When you are in responsible for someone else's money, you treat it as you as you would treat your own money. When you are blessed or with better. or better, when you're blessed with something, you treat it with respect. You don't just discard it right away and think, oh, I'll just buy another granted. one. We don't take it for granted. Exactly. Same here with wife. Same here with Shabbat. There was a that was a great story, by the way. I, I appreciate you bringing that up because it's it's that's uh, there's all sorts of of verses and stuff here for uh, about like Shabbat and about the Yom Tovs. This is just one that I've, I've liked. I've heard this one before. It's uh, Betzia 16a says, there are a number of ways Shabbat helps a person towards wealth. The first is by compensating him for all that he spends in honor of Shabbat. Right. Rav Techilfa, brother of Rav Choza, taught a person's livelihood is fixed from Rosh Hashanah to Rosh Hashanah, with the exception of what he spends on Shabbat and Yom Tov. If he cuts back his expenses on them, the heavens correspondingly cut back on his allowance. And if he spends more on them, they correspondingly increase it. So it's just, I, again, I think it's just, it teaches a very cool principle that Hashem knows how much we're going to make in our entire lifetime. He knows how much we're going to bless us with. And he, obviously he knows everything. And there's, he, but he's built into the way that we respond to a living. And one of the things is keep Shabbat, keep the festivals, and that is going to open up more blessing for us when we do that. And I, I think that, that it goes back too to that other one about intentions. When it comes to having those, Rashi talks about it with the wine and whatnot. It's having pure intentions when you're indulging those things. So, you know, we've talked in my house, I, I had a, got on this kick where I really wanted to get like one of those like silver menorahs. Oh, they are so expensive. But that's like a staple of like every Jewish home is like a pure silver menorah, you know? I mean, they spend a fortune on those things. But it's like, you should, there should really be some pure intentions there. Maybe not just to, you know, try to be more like uh, Rabbi Cohen. <laughs> I should I should have uh, some pure intentions before we do something. Next door. Yeah. yeah, but um, have a good night. The, uh, yeah, have a good night. But yeah, the the definitely the important principle to remember is when we spend money in order to to fulfill a mitzvah, to to glorify a mitzvah, to really make it so much so so special. I it, it that I think demonstrates our pure intentions that we're really we're not here to try to overly indulge. We're not here to try to satisfy some self-seeking pleasure. We we want to be as happy as possible on a day that God designated for us mm -hmm. as a gift. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I, I just I, I love that idea. You know that. And again, we're, it's, it's not like we're we're buying a really expensive bottle of wine and we're justifying it because we're going to drink it on Shabbat. It's like the total opposite. It's like we love Shabbat so much. Shabbat is worth this bottle of wine, right? It's like it's totally flipped. Right. Well, I think you can also. It's always it's not necessarily spending money. Sometimes it can also be enjoying the money that you spend. You know, you may uh, 
Um, an example that I have is uh, I like to get new clothes and things like that. And um, I always, it, it doesn't always work this way, so I don't always do it, but uh, it's fun to wear the new clothes for the first time on a Shabbat um, because it makes me happy. You know, I like to you know see how I look, and it feels good to wear something new, and 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 so I kind of it allows me to kind of apply that happiness to a Sabbath, and I think that's um, not it doesn't cost me any more. I was oh, going to have them either way, but you're saving it for Shabbos. I think that's a it says that's one way to try to make the Sabbath special, oh, yeah. um, and that's like so it could be something small like that. Mm. Very cool, absolutely. And of course, there are other things too with. Um, you meant to combine the two last chapters. Um, there's a cool tradition to buy your wife and children things on Yom Tovs. Right. Um, yeah. I true. think that David McDonald tries to do that for every single one, and mm -hmm. I really that was a really cool idea. And and we all lift up our wives and honor them as the Shabbat begins. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And I think we are wealthy for it, for yeah. sure. Good. So that's, uh, that's a wrap for, for this, this lesson. So next week we'll be talking about Tzedakah. Tzedakah. Sounds good. You want to pray? Sure. Have you been practicing? Uh, every day. Okay. Go ahead. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for um, a chance to learn about, about wealth, to be reminded of lessons of, about the importance of humility and the importance of spending our wealth on the right things, the importance of focusing um, our work and uh, to want to make it please you and not just be for ourselves. Pray that you would give us the stamina and the endurance this week as we work to do it for your sake, to do it for the right reason. Um, give us the courage to uh, to spend our money on um, on the best things, on on, on ways to uh, glorify the mitzvot, on ways to bless our families. And, um, and I pray that you would bless us as we do those things and that you would take this as an opportunity to show uh, those around us, um, how you care for your people. Yes, Father. We thank you for uh, Gregory and the time he's put in, and pray well in Yeshua's name. Amen. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Gregory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My pleasure.